We'll be looking at Titus chapter 3 this morning, specifically verses 4 through 7. Uh, before I pray, I do want to say thank you to your pastor, Pastor Todd, for the stewardship that um, he put in my lap. He didn't have to invite me, but he did, and I hope I strengthened his hands and your souls last week, and I hope to do that today, and if I don't do that, just forget you ever met me and receive the word from him uh, next Lord's Day. It was good to be uh, with you last week and this week as well. We were treated like a king and a queen by our hosts, uh, Brett and Lucy, so thank you for going above and beyond the call of duty. And uh, someday we hope to come back because we didn't see a lot. Everybody's asking us, did you go here? Did you see this? No. But we did see a lot of wonderful things. Beautiful city. Thankful to be here and trust that uh, the Lord will bless the preaching. I want to pray before I start to look at this passage with you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come before the people of God, to come in your special ecclesiastical presence with the word opened. And it is my task to explain to teach, to preach this section of Scripture. I'd be on a fool's errand if I thought I could do it without divine help, or if I thought the hearers could hear properly and appropriately without divine help. Help us. Preacher need, the preacher needs help. The hearers need help. The lost need help. The saved need, need help. Grant us that help so that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear and heads and hearts that delight in what we learn. We pray for your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. I had the section verses 1 through 8 read in your hearing earlier because verses 1 through 3 and 8 kind of sandwich my um, passage, kind of bracket my passage. If you notice, verses 1 and 2 and 8 kind of do... basically do the same thing. They are exhortations to live as Christians ought to live. I have the New King James Version here, verses 1, 2, and 8. Remind them, the saints, the believers, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to to speak evil of no one, to be peaceful, peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, and then verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So verses 1 and 2 and verse 8 all function the same way, an exhortation to live as Christians ought to live. Verse 3, which immediately precedes the passage I want to preach, um, says this, For we ourselves were also once foolish. So now we're going back. If you're a believer, we're going, we're going back in history. This is what you were before you were saved. We were, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, 
and hating one another. So here we have a reminder of what believers used to be like. And then we have an interesting word in verse 4, but. So the word but is immediately connected to verse 3. Verses 1 and 2 and 8 live as Christians ought to live. Verse 3, a reminder of what we were like when before we were saved and when we were saved. And then an exhortation in contrast to how we used to live, uh, an exhortation or a reason why we are not what we used to be. You used to be like this, but... Now he doesn't say, but now be like this. He doesn't go from what we used to do to what we ought to do now. That's kind of verses 1 and 2 and 8. We ought to live as we ought to live as believers. But instead he contrasts our former lifestyle with something other than our current, what our current lifestyle ought to be. But is a huge word in our passage. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done and so on and so forth. So the, the, the verses we'll consider, verses 4 through 7, function as a reminder to Christians of how they went from being lost to saved, how they went from darkness to light, to use other scriptural metaphors, from condemnation to no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're not in Christ Jesus, whatever that means, there is condemnation, looming, uh, condemning judgment coming your way. But if you're in Christ, no condemnation. So you go from being outside of Christ to being inside of Christ or united to Christ. This passage explains the great change that occurs in the life of those God saves. The basis for such a change and its glorious benefits and results. We'll see that as we work our way through the passage. So our text then functions as a motive for believers to live as they ought as believers due to the great work God has wrought for them and the effects of it brought to them or done within them. Okay, so this verses 4 through 7 is motivation. What should motivate us to live the Christian life as we ought to live it? In this passage, the motivation is God's work for us and in us. Because of grace, we ought to be grateful. You might have heard of the Heidelberg, is it the Heidelberg Catechism? Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Okay, Guilt, our sin and misery in Adam and in ourselves. Grace, what God has done in Christ. Gratitude, by virtue of the grace that has come to us, we ought to show ourselves rich in good works, in prayer, and obeying his law. So let's look at our passage. Uh, the simp- there's a simple assertion here, a really simple three-word statement that's um, so simple its profundity is sometimes lost just because of, of its simplicity. But if you read the first word, verse 4, but, then the next word, several words are actually a clause Okay, let's go back to English grammar. A clause can either be independent, all by itself, can stand on its own. It usually has a subject and a predicate. Or a clause can be dependent, 
If you just read it by itself, you're going, it needs to be connected to something else. In verse 4, we have a dependent clause here. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Yeah, what about it? Okay, so but starts us out and then we have this dependent clause and then these prepositional phrase, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. Then we have the. Here's the statement I was talking about. Three word statement. It's simplicity sometimes veils its profundity profoundedness, or whatever word is appropriate. He saved us. That's pretty important. We didn't save ourselves. He, you have to figure out who that is in context, saved. I'll explain that in a moment. Us, Paul includes himself, along with those he was writing to, and by implication, us as believers today, he saved us. So this is the the simple assertion of the text. And if you notice, I said verse 4a, but, is vitally connected to verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, but God saved us when we were in that state or condition or when we were living our best life now. Because, by the way, if you're an unbeliever, your best life is now. You guys know about that book over here? Okay. Uh, What a stupid... Sorry. What a foolish title. And if you have the New American Standard in the Proverbs, it will use the word stupid, right? So it's biblical to say that. Sorry, parents, if you don't want your kids saying that. Foolish. It was very foolish. What a foolish book title. Your best life now? Really? You know, read the the book of Acts. Your best life now, apostles. Read Read the history of martyrdom. Your best life now, martyrs. Well, they were in sin. That's why they were martyred. Anyway, here it is. He paints an ugly back, the ugly backdrop of ourselves in sin and foolishness. And he says, but, basically, like he does in Ephesians 2, but God. He saved us is this simple three-word assertion that I think is profound. God saves good people. No amens. Good. God saves bad people. You can give an amen on that one. And if you're a Christian, you were one of the bad people, peoples, persons that he saved. In your badness, in your ugliness, in your guilt and filth. You didn't, you didn't get around the gospel and then clean yourself up and present yourself to God. And then he says, all right, you've cleaned yourself up enough. I might save you if you continue this all the way to the end. As we'll see, the application of the benefits of salvation applied to our hearts are based on something utterly outside of us. Already accomplished. So this is the simple yet profound uh, and astounding statement. We're going to look at each word here. Uh, First of all, he. Uh, This refers back to verse 4. Notice verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God, 
our Savior toward mankind, toward man appeared. So this is God our Savior. We could say God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our Savior. When the, when, when, when this kindness and the love of God appeared, He saved us. This, He is God our Savior who is kind and loving and whose kindness a love and love appeared in the person uh, and work of Jesus Christ. The second word saved means something like to rescue from danger. So if that is, and I think that's a good enough definition of saved here, to rescue from danger, we could say that God is in the business of rescuing those who are in danger of his judgment due to their sins, a danger no one can get themselves out of. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah, I think, said that. Salvation comes by virtue of divine purpose and divine action on the earth in procuring it or in gaining it in the first place or in accomplishing salvation or redemption in the first place. That's what he does in the incarnation. And salvation is also of the Lord in terms of its application to our souls but you being dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1 and following. Uh, that, by the way, that's the best translation. Being dead in your trespasses and sins. And if you jump down, he made us alive together. Being dead, we were made alive. Being dead, we did not make ourselves alive. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Similar thing here. This is God Saving sinners, not by virtue of the fact that they're good and not by virtue of the fact that they're necessarily bad, but by virtue of the fact that he himself is, you know how Paul said in Ephesians 2, being rich in mercy. And we'll see the mercy part of it. A little later. So God is in the business of saving those who are in danger of God. God saves us from God. I think I'm borrowing from R.C. Sproul or somebody on that. But notice he says us. Paul often does this, includes himself in the list of those who can be described as the ones contained in verse 3. For we ourselves... He just did it again. You're going, wait a minute, I thought he was, his name was St. Paul. We ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. He saved us, those kind of people, is what he's getting at, including putting himself in that category. So the us refers to all that God saves. What we, what were they like when he saved them? Verse 3, God saves no goody two-shoes. I don't know if that's an Australian statement or the U.S., but he knows what it means. Because um, there, there are no goody two-shoes. There's none good, none righteous, no, not one, not even St. Paul. God saves sinners. God saves transgressors. Uh, of his law, those people who don't do what he requires and do what he forbids as a way of life and live in it and are blinded by it. Light comes into a dark place. 
He speaks life into dead souls. He brings the message of accomplished redemption when the fullest, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared toward mankind. That's the person and work of Christ. That's redemption accomplished there. He brings the fruits of that, the benefits of that, to souls who can't see their worth and value, and he makes them see their worth and value. He tinkers with us to bring us to his son. So God doesn't save good people. God saves sinners, those who transgress his law. And Paul wasn't saved because he was an apostle or a saint. By the way, no one who is saved is saved by virtue of any goodness in themselves. All the goodness is in God. And God's goodness is seen as really good goodness if you paint the picture of your own state or condition outside of Christ properly, you begin to see more and more and more this is just sheer divine goodness coming to ungoodness. That which used to be good and even very good at creation but was spoiled by sin and pollution and not only the guilt of Adam's first sin transferred to us, but this pollution that we have, and then our actual transgressions. How many sins do you think you committed before you became a Christian? Who can count them, right? Uh, David, when he was in his right mind, said, Forgive me of my hidden faults. Uh, Psalm 51. Who were those? Those faults are sins, transgressions of the law of God. Who were they hidden from? God? You know, where shall I go to flee your presence? Nowhere. There's, or were they hidden faults hidden to David? David wasn't conscious of all the sins that he had committed, even as a believer there. If it's true of David as a believer, he wasn't conscious of all of the sins that he had committed. He had hidden faults hidden to him. How much more so when he was an unbeliever? Uh, I've said this many times to, I might have said this last week, I don't know, but I'm going to say it again. We're way worse than we'll ever know. God's way better than we'll, we'll ever uh, exhaust. We'll, we won't get close to exhausting the goodness of God. God saves sinners. Salvation comes to us as a result of God's work, not ours. So if you're here going, I'm at church, it's a work, and it's good, therefore, God, you need to give me forgiveness and Entitlement to glory and eternal life. and That's not the way it works. It doesn't work by virtue of what we do for him. Whether we do things for him in order to get salvation in our mind, that's wrong. Or once we get salvation, we don't ultimately get glory by virtue of the, of the works that we do for him after we've come to him. None of that's involved with our justification. It's all outside of us, as we'll say. God saves sinner, sinners. I have a Luther quote, and I think I'm going to quote it. God saves sinners, Luther says. Evil persons, uh, by the way, I'm not saying this Luther is, if this makes you mad, get mad at Martin, Martin Luther. God saves sinners, evil persons, fools, and weaklings. 
in order to make them righteous, good, wise, and strong. Rather than seeking its own good, the love of God flows forth and bestows good. Here's the sentence I want you to think about. Therefore, sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. That's an interesting way to put it. God loves sinners because they are they are attractive. He says that's not the way it is. He says sinners are attractive because they're loved. Love divine love attract is attracted to making bad things good. Making sinners into saints, okay? So this is Paul's simple statement, simple assertion, in contrast to the way we used to live, God saved us. And now we have to deal with the rest of the passage. So I have a second major heading. The simple assertion was the first major heading. This one is longer. It'll go faster. I think each point will. The four things we learn about salvation from the text. I think Paul has this simple assertion. But he saved us, and then he tells us four things about salvation that kind of fill out this he saved us simple assertion in the context in which it was stated. And the first one's found in verse 4, when salvation was accomplished, or the historical accomplishment of salvation, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared. I think this is another way of saying for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I, I think this text is talking about the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ. The appearance of the love uh, of the love and kindness and love of God is to be seen in what? In the incarnation, in the sufferings, in the glory of Christ, in his holy life, in his wrath-bearing death, in his resurrected in his resurrection as a reward for accomplishing the work that he was sent to do. God's kindness and love appeared on the earth in Jesus Christ. It was out of divine pity and will for man's well-being that God sent Christ to the earth. Man had been, but it got spoiled and messed up. God desires man's well-being. He sends the Savior to repair the damage done by the fall into sin. Jesus is on a rescue mission and he accomplishes his work in the first century. So he accomplished salvation or everything necessary for sinners like us to make it to glory. Jesus accomplished in the first century. Notice, secondly, what salvation is based on or the non-meritorious basis of salvation. Paul goes on, when the, but when the, uh, he saved us, when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy. So we have the, what salvation is based on. First, negatively, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, then positively, but according to his mercy. You can see that just by... You know, noticing the words on the page there. So salvation is not based on works of righteousness, which we have done. Can we say that salvation is actually based on works of righteousness, just not ones we have done? Yes, we can say that. 
because God requires works of righteousness, uh, actions, heart with the proper heart dispositions, doing, willing the right thing according to God's law from a right principle or right attitude perfectly, personally, and perpetually according to the standard of God's law. That's what he requires of us. But what Paul says here, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. I think that's very important because you know, if you don't know Paul well enough, I'll introduce you to his wider thought. Paul elsewhere is going to say, but it's not as if there's no works of righteousness. It's just not done by us. Somebody does righteous things that are credited to sinners' accounts. It's not you either, by the way, or me that does the righteous deeds that are accredited. Okay, so no, the, the apostles didn't do more than they were required, and it spills over to our account, the apostles' righteousness. Matter of fact, the apostle himself says, we ourselves were also once foolish. So it can't be just horizontal mere man. It's, it's, it's got to be the savior of sinners, right? It's Christ's righteousness, uh, his deeds. So this is the universal testimony of the Bible, that salvation is not by human effort, not by our works. As a matter of fact, We have no good works as unbelievers to offer in order for God to reward them with glory or eternal life. We have works. We have deeds done. We have no good ones. Salvation, according to Scripture, is not by human effort. Um, I have here in my notes, George Whitfield said recently on Twitter, George Whitfield didn't say this, but somebody quoted George Whitfield, but George Whitfield didn't say what they, he, they said he said in the quotes. Uh, a man gets to heaven by works? Question, works, works? I would as soon, soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. So if you're here going, I'm going to get there like the rest of these good people here because we're all good. We're in church. Nobody's swearing at me or throwing tomatoes at me. We're civilly righteous. Um, I'm going to get there just like they're going to get there on good works. George Whitfield says, basically, can you climb to the moon on a rope of sand? And you'd go, that's foolishness. What do you think his point is? Getting to heaven by virtue of your own works is is foolishness. So how do we get there? But according to his mercy. Don't you love Paul sometimes? He'll state this thing and you go, well, yeah, it's not by our own. But according to his mercy. Again, just a few words. Pregnant with meaning. This This is really good news for all sinners. God is merciful. God pities those in need and comes to their aid, providing them with the help that they cannot provide for themselves, nor can any other human provide it for them. And they don't deserve it. 
They don't earn it. Matter of fact, they deserve and earn justice, condemnation, judgment, wrath, you know, the gnashing of teeth. But according, he saved us. Not by virtue of our, the works which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Here's a, um, a theologian that says, The mercy of God contemplates man as one who is bearing the consequences of sin, who is in a pitiable condition, and who therefore needs divine help. That's like one of the first things you have to come to as an unconverted sinner is, I need not just help this way. I need not just help this way. I need help this way. God has to come down. God has to do something or else I'm a goner. I'm in big trouble. Why? I'm a guilty sinner deserving of judgment and wrath. But the good news is this salvation that Paul's talking about here that was accomplished historically in the past in the person work of Christ is not does not come to us by virtue of our goodness, but God's goodness, His mercy. Salvation comes to sinful man because God sees man in a pitiable state, in need of divine help, and therefore helpless in himself. Psalm 109.21 says, Your mercy is good. And those of us that have tasted, we know it's way better than we've tasted, but what we have tasted is really good. But we know it's way better than we've actually experienced. Psalm 115.1 says that glory is to be given to God, worship, due to His mercy. Simply because God has been merciful to me, that's the part of the ground or basis for me to say, you're glorious, you're great, I owe you everything. Psalm 118.29 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And then we might say, well, illustrate that. For his mercy endures forever. So mercy is for the helpless. And the reception of it is grounds for praise. Mercy is for the helpless. Mercy is, divine mercy is God's action on the earth, whereby viewing man in a pitiable state, he pities him because man cannot help himself out of that state of existence that he's fallen into, and yet it doesn't stop God from coming down and doing his work. And that is the basis. If you receive that kind of mercy, your response should be hallelujah. Your response should be, what do I do? You do whatever he says. Notice third in our passage how salvation is applied or what I might call the personal application of salvation. He saved us. You can see this through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. This is the application of the redemptive benefits that Jesus lived and died for. Okay, So Jesus lives his righteousness He dies, his blood, all that is for sinners. He lives a holy life because we haven't and can't. He dies a wrath-bearing death. He takes the the justice of God to himself and he's punished instead of us being punished. He's punished 
in our place. It is a, a death according to a legal uh, status that he assumes as a guilty person who's not really personally guilty. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He wins righteousness by living holily. That is a word. Holily. Um, and he wins forgiveness by being a curse for us. So our double problem, we have no righteousness and we have guilt, the just liability to punishment. Jesus, as our substitute, takes our place, provides both. But it's one thing for him to provide both of those things and win all the benefits that those things bring with it, glory in the eternal state. It's another thing to deposit them into souls, right? It's one thing to accomplish. It is finished. It's another thing to apply. And certainly the application of the benefits of redemption is connected to the accomplishment, but you don't have application without accomplishment. Here we have application in the words of through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So God applies the salvation purchased by Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit regenerates, renews the soul, renews the mind, makes us alive to God when we were dead in our trans, our sins, convicts us of sin, convinces us of our guilt before God, cleanses us, imparts new life into the soul so we can see Jesus for all he is, a complete, perfect, merciful, and willing Savior. You don't see Jesus for who he is by just coming to church. The word of God read or preached without something more. If it's just a human activity, you're listening, I'm speaking, you're doomed. We need. I need more than that, and so do you. You need God. To, in the language of scripture, come down, which means to manifest himself, to make himself known to you. Not that he's not here. You know, when we say, God, come down, we're not asking God to relocate. You're utterly absent from this place um, and come into a place that you are now not. That's not what we're saying. We're assuming all the other truths about God, that he's omnipresent, but that he also makes that omnipresent known, or can I use the word felt? Too late. This is my last sermon here. Felt, okay? He makes his presence known or felt in particular ways, in accentuated ways. And this... Is talking about how the Spirit of Christ brings the benefits of Christ, having both been procured by Christ during a state of humiliation between womb and tomb. The Spirit of Christ takes the benefits of Christ and he brings them to elect unbelieving sheep. And he changes their souls as they're either reading or hearing about the gospel of Christ so that then they can see Christ for who he is, the incarnate son of God, my only hope. 
my only hope for forgiveness and my only hope for righteousness. Not his righteousness for me and my righteousness for him. His righteousness alone. When we're at the judgment, if it transpires like this, why should I you know, let you into my heaven? True believers would just keep, wherever the incarnate Son of God is at the time of the judgment, if he's right in front of us, thou hast been my righteousness from day one, and you'll be my righteousness through this judgment. The Spirit of God changes us. Regeneration is a change from the inside out. You must be born from above. You must be born again. I've, I think I've used my John Gershner voice uh, since I was here. I met John Gershner, who was R.C. Sproul's theological instructor at seminary and kind of mentor and had that rough, gravelly voice. Sounded like he hit the camels too much. Gershner says of Billy Graham's book, How to Be Born Again. You know, Billy Graham had a book, How to Be Born Again. He says, what kind of title is that? How to Be Born Again. You must be born anew. We don't cause ourselves to come into being in the first place, and we don't cause ourselves to be regenerated or renewed in the second place. This is a this is a God thing. And this is what's talk, what, what Paul's getting at here. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Spirit. This is something God does. And when it's done to you, you might not be able to explain it that way, but the more you read Scripture and experience the Christian life and talk with other brothers and sisters, and if you want to be honest with the text in your own heart, you look back and say, okay, now I know what happened. God did this to me. I remember standing in line at a Burger King, I think it was. Is there Burger King here? Yeah, that's right. I saw it. Okay, so uh, I'm in line. I just graduated college in 1983. Within six months, I'm a new man. Standing in line, big long line at lunch. Had my cowboy boots on, my big cowboy looking belt on. Probably had a stinky hat. Somebody taps me on the back, and I look back, and it's a guy I went to college with. And he says, Barcellus, is that you? And I said, Bandy, what's going on? And he said, heard you got religious. And I turned around, I put my finger like in his chest. I said, I didn't do this to myself. <laughs> I was a Calvinist and didn't even know it. <laughs> Listen to John Murray. He was a Scottish Presbyterian who taught in the United States. He says, there is a change that God effects in man, radical and reconstructive in its nature, called new birth, new creation, regeneration, renewal. That's what Paul's talking about here. A change that cannot be accounted for by anything that is in lower terms than the interposition of the almighty power of God. You want motivation for living the Christian life? Dead in trespasses and sins, God made you alive together with Christ. What's the basis for this? Rich in mercy, not anything good in you. Well, there are a few sparks of good, not anything good in you. 
One spark of good. Not anything good in you. All the goodness is on the other side of the line. Creatures, God. This is divine goodness coming from the other realm, penetrating into this realm of creature creatureliness in the midst of our sin and filth and guilt. We don't even deserve this. We deserve the utter opposite. And yet God does this thing. The governing disposition, Murray goes on, the character, the mind and will are renewed. And so the person is now able to respond to the call of the gospel and enter into privileges and blessings of the divine vocation, the divine calling, what God is calling us to. End of quote. Therefore, remember one of the verses when you're a new believer, one of the first verses is 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, new creation, or he is a new creature, old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. This is renewal. This is, this is cleansing language here in, in Titus. This is what Paul's getting at, the effectual call, I think, the application of redemption. Um, here's a hymn you might have heard of. I think it's true of, uh, it's connected to our passage here. I once was lost, but now am found. You've sung that many, you've sang that? You've sung that. You have sung that. You have singed it? You know what I mean. I always struggle with that one. I once was lost, but now I found myself. Nope. I am found. I was passive. A seeker found me. I was sought after. Was blind, but now I see. Who gave me the sight? The seeker. The finder. I'm the found. I'm the blind. The immediate result of regeneration is faith in the Son of God. You know, when the effectual call, I might have used that phrase already. I think that's what's being described here, this uh, bringing of the benefits of Christ to lost sinners and cleansing them in the process of them hearing the gospel. When you were effectually called, which is a, which is a divine summons, an effective summons in the soul, we hear it with our ears, but there's more than just hearing it with our ears. Our, the, the eyes of our hearts are being enlightened. The ears of our hearts or souls are being unplugged. The blind eyes of our souls are being given sight. When that's happening to us, were you going, wow, I'm being effectually called. This is great. Cleansing has happened to me. You don't do that, right? You don't go, wow, regeneration precedes faith. Therefore, I can't go to Jesus until until I'm really regenerated. So I'll just wait until the Holy Spirit finishes applying the benefits of Christ to me initially with saving faith. That's not what you do. What did you do? You went to Christ, right? Why? Because you wanted him. And then you read the Westminster Larger Catechism. And it says that we came most freely to Christ. Right? None of us came to Christ and go, I don't want, I don't want Christian salvation. When you came to Jesus, why did you come to Jesus? Because you wanted to. We came most freely being made willing by His grace. And I think this is what Paul's getting at here. And then last, 
what salvation guarantees, verse 7, or the glorious benefits. When salvation was accomplished, or he saved us, when was salvation accomplished? When the kindness and love of God appeared. Incarnation. What is it based on? Not our works, which we have done in righteousness, but his mercy. How is it applied? The washing and regeneration of the Spirit. What, are its, what does it guarantee? What is this salvation accomplished utterly and totally outside of me? Whose benefits come to me in space and time by this work of the Spirit? What does all of that guarantee? What salvation guarantees are the glorious benefits of salvation? That having been justified by His grace, that's very important. We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I shouldn't read it that way, should I? Because I think this is a climax here. That having been justified by His grace, having been pronounced righteous in the sight of heaven as a gracious act of God by virtue of not works which we have done in righteousness, but His mercy as exemplified in the incarnation, sufferings, and glory of Christ for me and for my salvation, having been justified based on the doing and dying of Jesus exclusively and alone, that's a given. That leads me to this. We should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the one good thing leads to a better thing. It's, it's a good thing to be justified in this life. It's a better thing to be an heir of eternal life and actually experience the ultimate expression of this eschatological gift. So those who God saves, he regenerates, he justifies by grace, and he makes them heirs of eternal life. Now to justify means to pronounce as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. So we could say that the holy life of Christ is credited to our account. Our sins as believers were credited to him he died instead of sinners dying under divine justice. He got what we deserved, so we get what we don't deserve. This is, that's like the, the, the passage here. God did something in Christ so that we didn't get what Christ got instead of us getting it, and we get a bunch of good stuff. Even though we're bad and sinners and don't deserve it, he's rich in mercy. The demands of God's law and justice are satisfied in Christ and Him alone. We have a righteous standing before God because of Christ's righteousness, His law-abiding life from womb to tomb, and our guilt, our liability to punishment, was exhausted by Christ when He died as a curse for us on the cross. That's a long version of saying that's the good news. Him, there's another hymn, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds in these arrayed. With joy shall I lift up my head when from the dust of death I rise to claim my mansion in the skies. Even then this shall be my plea. Jesus hath lived, hath died for me. You see what that old hymn says? When it's all said and done, it's still, it's not based on what I've done for him, but what he did for me. What I do for him doesn't come into the divine uh, vision of the basis of the justifying verdict. Did you just hear what I said? If you're justified, it's in virtue of what he did and he did alone. 
for you, not what you do plus. It's not thy works plus mine, O Christ. Speak happiness to this soul, or however the hymn goes. It's thy works alone, O Christ. Speak mercy to this soul. Not thy works plus mine, O Christ. Thy death plus mine. Thy cross plus mine. Thy righteousness plus mine. To be an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Whatever it is, it sounds good, doesn't it? Means that all that eternal life means is yours by a gracious, unmerited inheritance. If we are not natural sons of God, but adopted sons of God, then that which we get by virtue of being a son of God isn't ours by nature, it's ours by grace. Isn't ours by merit, it's ours by grace. Isn't ours by merit, it's ours by by mercy, right? So whatever eternal life means, and it's so good, scripture writers say you can't put it into words. When you die, at least it means this much your body may go to the grave but your soul goes to be with Christ and when our Lord comes again he will raise your corruptible body transforming it into an incorruptible body you'll live forever in a totally renovated and perfected earth the safe and special presence of God will be your highest delight sin and sorrow will be no more death will be a relic of the past that's weird to say death will be a relic of the past only heart thrilling bliss incredible joy and incomprehensible incomprehensible happiness will be yours and all those who are the legitimate heirs of eternal life. I've said this, I say this to our people a lot. A lot. Let, me, let, me, let me illustrate the, the eschatological state, glory, Emmanuel's land, where there is no sin or sorrow. By a personal uh, uh, illustration of, of my good week. I had a good week this week. It's kind of like glory. It doesn't it doesn't fit, does it? What you know? What in the world is a good week, too? Nothing we have experienced. You might say, well, you know, there's been times in my church experience, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, just seems to be a, the best sermon I've ever heard, and the singing was glorious, and the prayers were wonderful, and the fellowship was great. Eye has not seen, nor neither has ear heard all that the Lord has in store for those who love him. All Christians know what joy is, the peaceful, quiet, eternal sense based on the objective revelation of God that all ultimately is well with me and God because of Christ. And so I can have this sense of internal happiness. And sometimes it comes out. But in the end of Jude, he says that we're going to be in his presence with great joy. What in the world is great joy? It must be that that in the U.S. they sing a song on retreats a lot. Uh, that you know, ba ba bubbling. You ever heard that one? Ba ba bubbling. I can't illustrate it, but it's just like I'm so full of spiritual stuff that I'm six inches off the ground and I got a halo and I, I don't have a tail. I have wings, uh, and I'm like an angel. I'm just floating around and. It's like, no, that's, whatever a great joy is, it's glorious. There's, there's going to be no like, all right, the great joy stops. Our joy sometimes is eclipsed with legitimate sorrow and concern. 
We are heirs of a sorrowless state of existence. Earned for us by our Savior. I have no idea what time I started, and I have no idea what time I'm supposed to end. It's 12.04. I'm supposed to end. Look at that look on his face. You can keep going if you want. <clears throat> you know, I leave on Tuesday, so I can basically do what I want, right? Let's just, let's just add a brief contemplation, okay? Let's think about all this stuff. Believers, consider the first words of our text, but. That's a huge word in context. It used to be like this, and Paul includes himself, foolish, hating each other, all that stuff. But, but God did something. First of all, he revealed his love and kindness to mankind. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem sinners. He assumed our, he assumed our nature, duties, and liabilities in order to bring us to God. What was that based on? Nothing you did. Everything he did. Mercy. How does it come to me? More mercy. Regeneration. Washing. You don't deserve that. It comes. Uh, the wind blows where it, is it listeth? Where it wishes. It just blows. God brings the benefits of Christ according to His will to those He's determined to bring it to. And that was you. So when you don't have a good week, which there are no good weeks, even for Christians, you remember this kind of stuff. You go, wait a minute. I didn't do this to myself. God saved me. I, I, Lord, please forgive me for, for my terrible week and help me to be motivated properly uh, to live for you. How about unbelievers? Unbelievers, you might be here going, I, I don't know about all this stuff. Well, I think you should consider the first words of our text as well. But, a first word, but. Okay, because the description that's ugly in verse 3 applied to us, the, two, the pastors too. That applied to us before we were renewed and cleansed. And it applies to you if you're not savingly united to Christ, if you don't believe the gospel. But remember what Paul says, but God saved us. God saves people who can be described like the people in verse 3. That's why the Bible says Jesus is the enemy of sinners. He's the friend of sinners. That's why the religiously righteous people had problems with him eating and drinking with tax collectors and, and loose living women and people that were not viewed as sociably acceptable. Jesus, thank God, ate with sinners. Why is this? Because the Son of God incarnate pitied us in our current state. So you should see from our text, if you're an unbeliever, that God is way merciful. You should drink of his mercy in the gospel. It is the good news that all believing sinners are saved to the uttermost. 
because of Jesus and Jesus alone. You say, well, my faith is weak. Your what? Faith. What do you mean by faith? Well, I mean I have knowledge that seems to be pulling me toward it, and I am testifying that that's true, and I'm apprehend. I'm grabbing hold of the, the object. What's the object of your faith? Christ. Okay, I don't care if your faith's weak, as long as it's true faith in Christ. Because it's ultimately not the oomph in our faith that saves. It's the targets, the goals, the object of our faith. What's the object of saving faith? The incarnate Son of God having become incarnate, having lived, having died, having been raised, having been ascended, having ascended, and now ruling and reigning. If you find Christ as the object of your faith, your weak faith will get you to glory because it's in Christ. I'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We ask your blessings upon it in that way that only you can do. Bring it with power to our souls. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.